On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On part two of Killers Anonymous, we have the Freeway Phantom, the New Bedford Highway Killer, and the Seven Bridges Killer. Then we will leave the U.S. and wrap up with a Russian serial killer, the Volga Maniac. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. It is 2021. I still love biscuits. And I still love true crime. I guess some things never change. I'm hoping to love biscuits a little bit less this year. I'm pretty sure my thighs are going to thank me for it. But I have no intention of abandoning my obsession with serial killers, murderers, and unsolved crimes. Maybe this year, though, I'll throw in some whimsical stuff. You know, like what on earth happened that made people believe in werewolves and vampires? Everything has some kind of basis, in fact. So what inspired people to believe in shape-shifting humans? If you know anything about me, you also know I write urban fantasy, which in a nutshell is tossing mythical beings into modern-day settings and letting them do their thing. I might be a bit biased, so you'll have to forgive me. Anyway, today is not about the Wolfman or Dracula. Today is about real-life monsters. So let's dive on in. Who the hell was the Freeway Phantom? In Washington, D.C., six young black girls were kidnapped and murdered between April of 1971 and September of 72. The bodies were all found near major highways in and around D.C. The first victim of the Phantom was 13-year-old Carol Spinks. Carol left home on April 25, 1971. She was headed to the local 7-Eleven to pick up some soda. She had been given $5 by her older sister, but she never returned from that quick errand. Six days after she vanished, her body was found next to the northbound lanes of I-292 on an embankment. Carol had been sexually assaulted, specifically sodomized. She'd been beaten, cut across her face, torso, and arms. Ultimately, she'd been strangled to death. Her autopsy revealed that she'd been alive for several days before she'd been killed and her body discovered. Darlenia Johnson, 16 years old, was on her way to work on July 18, 1971. Her home was in the same Congress Heights neighborhood as Carol Spinks. Her body was eventually found just about 15 feet away from where Carol Spinks had been found. Decomposition was too advanced when Darlenia was found, so no cause of death was determined conclusively. But they did determine that her death was probably strangulation. Whether or not she was sexually assaulted could not be determined. There was a witness, however, that did come forward and claim that they saw Darlenia in an old black car that was being driven by an African-American man. The Phantom's next victim was 10-year-old Brenda Crockett. She, like Carol Spinks, had left home to go to the store. Shortly after she left, she called home and, while crying, told her sister she'd been picked up by a white man and was being brought home. A little while later, she called a friend and repeated the same story she told her sister. She also said she thought she was in Virginia. 
It was just a few hours later when hikers on U.S. Route 50 near Baltimore Washington Parkway in Maryland found her body. Brenda had been raped and strangled. There was a scarf tied in a knot around her neck. The police would come to believe that Brenda had been forced by her killer to make those phone calls and to give false information. Giving the wrong locations and the description of a white man would buy the killer some time and hopefully throw off the investigators. On October 1st, 1971, 12-year-old Ninomoshia Yates disappeared. She was coming home from the store when she vanished. Her body was found on the shoulder of Pennsylvania Avenue in Maryland. She'd also been raped and strangled. This was the murder that inspired the press to title him the Freeway Phantom. Brenda Woodward, who was 18, was out having dinner with a friend on the evening of November 15th. After eating, Brenda got on a bus to head home. Her body was found a few hours later near an access ramp to Route 202. She'd been strangled and stabbed. The killer did something new this time. He left a note for police. He'd put the note in a coat pocket and then had draped the coat over Brenda's lifeless body. It would be determined that Brenda herself had been forced to write that note. That note said, quote, This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me, if you can. Unquote. It was signed, Freeway Phantom. The Phantom's final victim was 17-year-old Diane Williams. She'd been cooking dinner for her family and visiting with her boyfriend that evening. The last thing she did was get onto a bus. The next time she was seen, she was dead. She was found along I-295, south of the district line. She'd been strangled. Throughout the years, several investigators have looked at the Freeway Phantom case, but that's hard to do when it turns out that the original case files from the D.C. police have been lost. How do you lose case files on a series of unsolved murders? Seems like you might want to keep those handy. But it wasn't just the files. Oh no, it seems the physical evidence is also missing. The only thing they have left to work with are FBI records and records from the Maryland Police Departments. But it doesn't appear those are complete either. There was a semen sample taken from one of the victims, and it was finally tested in 2002. But in the end, it did not yield a DNA profile that they could work with. At the time of the initial investigation, police thought that a gang known as the Green Vega Rapist might be involved. One gang member, who was in prison, pointed the finger at another member of the gang. The informant wasn't considered a suspect because he had an alibi at the time. And I said suspect and just spit all over my iPad. Real attractive. Anyway, I guess he was in prison, but that's just me guessing. So anyway, this informant clams up because some local politician that is running for office goes and announces that someone in Lurton Prison had named the killer. Informant was pretty freaked out. I'm sure he was afraid other prisoners or gang members are going to figure out it's him. So he stops talking and then goes on to deny that he ever told police anything. Ultimately, the police decide it's all bunk and the Green Vega gang are not involved in the Phantom Murders. At one point, two police officers by the names of Edward Sullivan and Tommy Simmons were questioned about the Phantom Murders. In the end, they were suspected in the murder of a woman named Angela Barnes, and she was a victim that was not included in the Phantom series. 
there was this other suspect, and his name was Robert Askins. Robert Askins was a convicted kidnapper and rapist who'd been charged three other times with homicide. Askins didn't admit any involvement and, in fact, denied it. Police weren't able to find any physical evidence to connect him to the phantom crimes, and Askins died in prison, so he isn't talking anymore. Since so much evidence and the original information collected has vanished, there isn't a lot of hope that these six murders will be solved. Unless the Phantom just pops up one day and says, here I am. Not very likely. Next up is the new Bedford Highway Killer. This unidentified killer was active in 1988 and 89. His first victim was 29-year-old Deborah Medeiros. She was a native of Fall River, Massachusetts. Her body was found on July 3rd, 1988, just off of Route 140 North. She'd been reported missing by her mother. Her mom had been worried because Deborah and her boyfriend had been involved in a pretty nasty argument right before she went missing. Unfortunately, Deborah's body was reduced to skeletal remains by the time it was found. The other victims of this killer were all discovered between the late fall of 1988 and spring of 89. These victims were 28-year-old Robin Rhodes, who was last seen in New Bedford in either March or April. 28-year-old Rochelle Dopirala was last seen in New Bedford in April of 1988. There was also 25-year-old Deborah McConnell, last seen in May of 1988. Deborah DeMello, 35 years old, was last seen as she walked from a prison work release program on June 18th of 1988. 36-year-old Nancy Paeva went missing on July 7th. 25-year-old Don Mendez disappeared on September 4th. Mary Santos, who was 26, was last seen on July 16th. And then 24-year-old Sandra Botello is last seen on August 11th of 1988. All of these victims were either drug addicts or known prostitutes. All of their bodies were discovered on or near Route 140, Interstate 195, or Route 88. Let's talk suspects. Three men were questioned. Anthony DeGrazia, who lived in Lakeville, Massachusetts, was identified by a New Bedford sex worker. She claimed he assaulted her in 1988, and she described he had this very distinctive flat nose. So DeGrazia would eventually be charged with 17 rapes and assaults. But get this, after a year of incarceration, he's released on bail in January of 90. He committed suicide a few months after that. It would not be until 2015 before another major suspect emerged. Daniel Tavares Jr., who was acquainted with one of the victims, Sandra Botello. Daniel was convicted of the 1988 murder of Gail Botello. She'd been killed over a cocaine debt. Gail's remains were found buried in Daniel's backyard back in 2000. He killed her in 88. Her remains aren't found until 2000. Where was Daniel? Well, he was in prison for the 1991 murder of his mother, Ann Tavares. Finally, everyone's favorite suspect is Kenneth Pont. Kenneth was indicted in 1990 for the murder of Rochelle Dopirala. He had a bit of a rap sheet that included drug offenses as well as some related to his relationship with Rochelle. 
Kenneth also up and relocated himself to Florida in 1988 before most of the victims were found. Kenneth also fit the profile that they'd come up with. They thought maybe the killer had a working knowledge of law enforcement techniques. And guess what Kenneth was? He was a lawyer. In the end, the 1990 charges against him were dropped. He was arrested in 2009 for shoplifting. I wonder what he shoplifted. Probably something stupid. In 1990, he was found dead in his New Bedford home. So if he was the New Bedford Highway Killer, he took that info to the grave. Next up, the Seven Bridges Killer. I took a big old gulp of some red wine right before I started saying that, so if you heard all the saliva in my mouth, it's the wine's fault. In Rocky Mount, North Carolina, which is part of a very rural, rural, rural area, is where the Seven Bridges Killer was the most active. His victims were young black women that were drug addicts, sex workers, or both. The first victim whose body was found was 29-year-old Melody Wiggins. A farmer near Seven Bridges is taking down an electric fence. There's a tree stump nearby, according to an article in GQ. He is drawn towards it by a strange odor. He finds what he thinks is a deer carcass. Sadly for him, what he's actually found are skeletal remains of Melody. Her hands are raised above her head, he says, like she was looking for help, and she is laying face down. The body is covered in beetles and maggots. The next victim found is Nikki Thorpe, who was better known as Miss Jackie. Miss Jackie was raised in the projects of Stoke Street. She would often braid the hair for local addicts and drug dealers. They would sometimes pay her with drugs. Miss Jackie's body was found in a decomposed condition alongside Seven Bridges Road, just like Melody. There was another victim who was also in a very decomposed state. That was Ernestine Battle. She was 50. Miss Jackie and Ernestine knew each other. Two years later, the body of 31-year-old Jarnese Hargrove was found in a wooded area by a farmer, another farmer, about 10 miles from the other victims. There are two other victims, 40-year-old Roberta Williams and 43-year-old Christine Boone, who are also suspected victims of the Seven Bridges killer. There are some others that might be attributed to him as well. There is a strong suspect in Antoine Pittman. He was convicted of the murder of 28-year-old Tarhara Nicholson. She was found strangled to death in the woods five miles from her home on March 7, 2009. Antoine is a native of Edgecombe County, and he is the chief suspect in the Seven Bridges cases, but he has yet to be charged with those murders. On to our last killer, the Volga Maniac. This Russian serial killer has yet to be identified, or maybe he has. Hang on a minute. This potentially unidentified killer is despite the fact that he killed 32 elderly women between 2011 and 2012. There is video footage from a security camera in and on a building. He's described as slim, between the ages of 20 and 35, and about 5 feet 9 inches tall. In the footage from one of the crime scenes, 
it shows this man, the one suspected of being the killer, wearing a dark jacket, a knit cap, dark pants, and tennis shoes. In the Russian media, he's described as being non-Slavic in appearance. What this probably means is he is suspected of belonging to one of Russia's Muslim or Christian minority groups. In the video, looks like he has a clipboard or a folder of papers. This would lend credence to the theory that he poses as someone with the government or with social services. This would make sense because the victims all were between the ages of 75 and 90, and they all lived in public housing blocks near the Volga River. There isn't a lot of info on this killer in the non-Russian media, but what we do know is that all of the victims were strangled and robbed. It appears, though, that the robbery was incidental. Even though it's evident in all of them, Russian investigators believe it wasn't the real motive. The killing was the motive. He just likes to kill. Robbery is kind of icing on the cake. As a side note, on December 1st of 2020, CBS News reported that Russian authorities said they've detained a suspect in the Volga maniac murders. They've identified him as 38-year-old Radik Tagarov. They claim to have DNA evidence and shoe prints from the crime scenes that link him to the killings. Since that's only a month ago, I'm leaving it on the list until it's official. This was a quick one. Not always a bad thing. Now that I have my new microphone, I'm hoping things sound better. I know I don't have to sit right on top of it anymore. I can actually sit back and see my iPad where my notes are. I'm also hoping, as a side note completely unconnected with true crime, that it's good enough to start working on audiobooks. I will let you know how that goes, whether you want to know or not. Also, on another side note that might be related, I also got a little webcam. Maybe, just maybe, I'll do a video episode of Crime Biscuit. I'll do a reverse of a Bailey Syrian video. I'll show you how not to do your makeup while talking about crime. That should be fun. So hang tight for the final crumb. In the meantime, I'm going to post pictures from all of the crimes we talked about today on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, you can follow me there or on Twitter at CrimeBiscuit or drop me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Facebook is CrimeBiscuit, a true crime podcast. Here's your final crumb. If you fall asleep every night to forensic files or unsolved mysteries and wake up feeling just fine every morning, you might be a crime biscuit. Thanks for joining me. See you next time. Mm-hmm.